Hey, your your last name is pronounced Lime, right? Correct. I want to call you Rhonda Lynn for some reason. No, I just everybody like does, they're... and I don't even really correct people. Do they? There's people that call me Rhonda Lynn for years, and I'm just like, whatever. I don't. It's because it's like a, it sounds like a country singer's name or something. Exactly. Exactly. Rhonda That's Lynn. Why I'm, I'm Rhonda Lynn. Exactly. Rhonda Big city, yeah. Kansas City. How you feeling? Welcome to Center Cuts. Today is episode number eight. It's December 1st. Chris, am I doing my job so far? Yep. We are here with Rhonda Line, the executive director from the Midwest Music Foundation. How are you doing, Rhonda? I'm doing great. Thank you. We are zooming away, and we decided to hold off on this meeting a little bit so we could all get through the Thanksgiving festivities and recharge. Rhonda, really appreciate you giving up some of your time after a long day at work, it sounds like. <laughs> it was um, a little, little bit of one. Just when you expected it, right? Yes. And we'll delve into a little bit about Rhonda's life, her involvement with the foundation, Kansas City here in just a bit as we normally do. Chris mentioned we, we try to kick things off uh, with a calendar each episode. And as I'm looking at my calendar, which you can both see because we're zooming, it's blank. <laughs> we, we'd had a whole bunch of things going. There's Rhonda's too. I see Chris is behind him. Just the X's were all marking off. We just had a flurry of activity, it seemed like there, October, even into November. And when I look at as least far as musical events this next month, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of options. And anything on either one of your radars coming, and not to be music related either, in the next month before we get into hopefully a better 2021? Well, tonight, um, Rex Hobart and Bo Bledsoe are doing a simulcast. Um, they're going to be watching it down at the ship. And then Hobart's kind of built the ship in his basement. Yeah. I assume that's where they're doing it from. But he um, reached out to me today and said they were going to be taking donations for the foundation. So that was exciting. And I know this will air. That'll already be in the past. But that's really cool. And a lot of my friends kind of do these weekly um, streams. Mike and Shane from Two Cow Garage, which is this band I really like from Columbus, Ohio, have been doing streams pretty regularly. Jesse Mallon from New York and Dean um, from the Waco Brothers has been doing a weekly brunch on Sundays usually. So I usually try to tune into those. Um, James Carter over at You Found Music has been featuring a lot of the local artists on his Facebook page stream. So I just kind of look on Facebook and usually I find out the day of or a couple days before and just kind of catch whatever is streaming that day. Sarge has really come back with the vigor here. I think this maybe last two weeks now, I'm just seeing a constant stream of, of performances. It's almost like putting those into a schedule themselves as far as live streams. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's been amazing for our local musicians. He's so supportive and in the foundation too. So just an amazing, I, sweet guy. I believe he partnered with Eula, right? Weren't they creating masks and those donations were going Yeah, it has been amazing. They've been doing these masks ever since this started and I believe it's 40% goes to the Midwest Music Foundation, 
and the rest of it goes to the person that's actually making them. It was a way to keep one of their employees busy. But I think we're over $5,000 that we've Holy received. God. He's, I'd have to look, I don't have that spreadsheet open, but it's been amazing. Like every few months I get a payment from them. Like they've sold so many masks. So that's been amazing just to, you know, and we've used that in our COVID fund to give out our COVID grants. So that's been really nice just to have those regular donations coming in. That's fantastic. Sarge, you know, the last show, one of the two last shows, same night before the pandemic I saw was uh, Mickey P and the Swallowtails over there before heading down to the ship. And that was, you kind of knew it was coming. I'm glad you brought up the ship too. Rex has been a stalwart throughout the summer. I remember the first one he did where he recreated the ship and I'm just, you know, on the one hand you're laughing, like I can't believe <laughs> I'm seeing this. And on the other hand, just in awe, like he's got incredible skills. Yeah, he also recreated Davies for a benefit yes. for them. And like the detail, he had all the little stickers on the window behind the stage. And it's, he's super creative. And, you know, that's, he does that for a living, builds sets for the um, Coterie Theater. So. Wonder what he's going to get into this winter in his basement. He's going to come out with Who like. Knows? Who knows what he's got set. going on down there. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. No, that's a good. Those are a couple of great things going on. I know that um, Riot Room has been doing some events or at least trying to get some fundraising going there. I know Rhino, Chris, we talked about that last time. Westport Saloon, um, Travis is really invested in some streaming for theirs, so. We've got, um, I wanna say Record Bar's gonna have a stream of Shiner, Chris. Is that right? On the 18th, maybe? Something? I. I've been just, and I don't know if this is all official, but Center Cut was supposed to have a holiday show that we want to do every year, Cocktails and Candy Canes, and it just wasn't going to work to be in a venue. And so we're talking about potentially getting some pre-recorded performances at Record Bar with some of our artists, getting some organizations involved, hopefully including Midwest Music Foundation, just to let the public, the general public know the value of live music, and the dire situation it's in without really any support federally, statewide, and locally. And we're trying to change that locally while we're waiting for the Senate to get their act together. So hopefully we'll have some details about that. Anything on your radar, Chris? Um, no, I was just going to say that uh, Riot Room has a GoFundMe right now uh, to help keep their doors open. Um, I know they've been doing uh, like happy hours. I don't know what they've been able to do since. Uh, the more recent restrictions or anything, but um, I believe they're going on or Tim was going on the bridge or something like that today or tomorrow. I'm, I don't know what day today's Tuesday. So it'd be today. Yes. Um, so I know they're doing that. Um, a lot of, a lot of the bands and stuff are, are doing live streams. So just, you know, stick to their socials, pay attention. That stuff will pop up a lot. Um, Cause that's just kind of what we can do right now. Something that was really helpful, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic, at least at Do 816, I know Aaron Rhodes, they were compiling, you know, live streams to follow, um, and that just tapered off. I imagine other things came up in their lives. Uh, it'd be great if we had some sort of clearinghouse for that. I know Chris Aguirian's done some of that as well. And anybody out there listening wants to pick up that torch so we can all figure out what's going on for the next rest of the pandemic, please hook us up. I do know Slim down at the pairing, they're gonna have like solo artists 
I saw Jason Beers posted, I think every Friday in December. He started that with Mike Stover last month. And I know Knuckleheads is still doing some shows and some of the other, maybe some of the jazz. I saw the Phoenix still has like their jazz brunch. So there are some things, but definitely limited capacity and very, nothing like the old days where there was 10 shows every night, so. If we could all just create like heated body suits, you know, hazmat suits, no need for space heaters. We could just kind of like rub on each other. You <laughs> said at the beginning we all ought to get Zorbs, like the flaming lips, and just right. go oh. around in those big bubbles. But I guess they did a concert in those, so but it hasn't quite caught on to the masses. Center Cuts. We are here again today, zooming away with our producer, Chris Mowry, and we've got Rhonda Line, Executive Director of the Midwest Music Foundation with us. And we usually just start this segment trying to pick your brain about who is Rhonda Line. Like, tell us your life story, like, you know, born at this particular <laughs> second. I mean, not that far. You're, you're not from, from Kansas City? No, I'm from a small town in Kansas called Miltonvale, Kansas. Which, Milton if you blink, Hill? you may miss it. Yes, we're um, about three hours west of here, hour west of Manhattan, north central Kansas, right off Highway 24. Okay. So, I mean, when you say small town, I, we've been uh, 500 people. My class was 11 people. You are the ch 500 total people? Yeah. Okay, you're the winner. We've had <laughs> 5,000 and 7,000, Chris. Wow, we got some small town uh, music lovers. Uh, what was that like? I mean, was your family from there? Was that like? Yeah, my family's from there. It's a farming community. So most of my family farmed. We actually lived in town and my dad um, collects cars, lots and lots of cars. He has over a thousand. Um, so we just lived in town and we had all these old cars. There was only a portion in town. Most of them were out in the country on the family farm. Um, but I liked it, you know, I was able to be on all the sports teams and do all the um, things I maybe couldn't have done in a larger town. I wouldn't have been good enough to be on the basketball team um, anywhere else, but I had to be because we didn't have enough people otherwise. So I feel like I got, you know, a good experience. Our classes, some of my classes were two or three people. So it was very individualized. And I just grew up on the farm with my cousins playing in old cars and driving tractors and combines. So I, I liked it. I don't know that I could live there now, but you know, I felt like it was a good upbringing. You didn't have to worry about crime or anything really. So 
Well, because you probably knew where to go find everybody or anybody. Yeah, everybody knew everybody. You didn't lock your doors, like, you know, for better or worse, everybody knew everybody's business. So, so that was just one school? Was it like a K through eight? Yeah, our school, well, we had a grade school and a high school. Um, there was about 30 in high school when I graduated. We were at 11, the biggest class. Whoa. I think the sophomores had three. Um, so oh, imagine their prom was really exciting. Um, we, um, about my senior year, they started combining sports with another little town because they just didn't have enough people for eight-man football. So we kind of commute, but the school stayed separate. It was, it was kind of a weird situation. But that was kind of after I graduated, they started combining. I'm curious, as a longtime school teacher, did you have teachers teaching you multiple grades, like your sixth Oh, yeah, grade? yeah. The science teacher pretty much taught all the science, you know. Um, at the high school, it was seventh through 12, and then it was kindergarten through six over at the grade school, which okay. was on the other side of town, which is like okay. a mile apart. I mean, there are a lot of studies that will show if you have a good teacher two years in a row, or a great teacher, sorry, a great teacher two years in a row, like your, your learning increases exponentially. It's out of control. Whereas well, my science teacher, Mr. Loeb, I loved, and he was, you know, chemistry, biology, all the sciences. Yeah. And that's kind of how I ended up going into science because he was such a great teacher. And that's what I was getting to, because on the other hand, if you have a not good teacher, a, a poor <laughs> teacher, a couple years in a row, you basically can't recover from it. So I would imagine in such a small school, you know, sometimes schools will even pool the two small schools together because just people are leaving the small towns these days and they can't find a teacher, especially a young single teacher that wants to relocate there and, you know, maybe not have the best social life or career advancement opportunities. So they have to combine rural schools together to have, you know, enough staff. Can't even imagine what's going on during the pandemic. Oh yeah. But a teacher or two out because of quarantine or something like that. Uh, before we keep talking about time, and then the cars, I think Sandra Freeman had visited she you. Posted, yeah, home. she went home with me. Um, we went back a couple weekends ago. Cause I, I tell people about this and I show them Google Earth pictures, but until you actually see it up close, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 you know, there's acres and acres of cars that have been out there, you know, before I was born. So they're all, there's trees growing up through them and rusted out, but there's some really cool stuff out there because you can't find those cars anymore. So people come from all over and buy stuff for my dad and he's on the internet now, which is my dad on the internet's kind of hilarious, but he's posting stuff and selling stuff to people from all over. It's, it's super cool. They're, they've almost become part of the landscape. Like you said, things growing out of them. I'm sure they're animals. Oh, just, yeah. <laughs> he just, keep them there or is he repairing them or is he taking oh i mean he's 80 now so he's not really able to work on stuff like he used to but he sells some but he buys <laughs> some to replace so it kind of never the mass quantity always stays kind of the same okay so farming background childhood and then had a influential impactful science teacher did, did you go from there to Manhattan, K-State? Yeah, um, I moved, as soon as I graduated the summer, moved up to Manhattan with my cousin, who was a single mom. 
Um, her daughter was about six months old when I moved in. So I kind of had an unusual college experience. I was helping my cousin raise her child. So mm. we kind of alternated our schedule because she couldn't really afford childcare. And um, but it, it was good too. It kept me from getting too wild and partying because I stayed at home a lot with her daughter and she was a year older. So the year after she graduated, it was kind of my year to let loose a little bit and hit the bars a little more. Plus, I wasn't old enough really until my senior year. Not that that mattered too much back in those days. Mm -hmm. it, it was pretty easy to get in the bars, even if you weren't 21. But right. yeah, I went to K-State, um, lived there from the summer of 90 till 2007. So I got both my degrees there, just kind of stuck around, had my job with the USDA straight out of college. and then moved up here in 2007 and continued to work for the USDA at a different agency. What were, you, what were you majoring in or what were you? My undergrad is in biology and then my master's, basically I got my job with the USDA um, straight out of college and they had a program where they would basically pay you to go back to school. So I took my classes and got my master's while I was working for the USDA and they paid for a lot of that. So that was really cool. I didn't really have any intentions, but it was an offer you couldn't pass up. So I got a master's in grain science, which is a pretty rare degree. I think K-State's probably the only place that has it. It's very specialized. I didn't know it existed when I lived there until I started working for the USDA. Grain science, you're studying like the the makeup of individual grains, or you're like trying to- Yeah, it's a lot of cereal, it's a lot of chemistry, the cereal chemistry, the proteins and the starches um, that make up the different grains, wheat, sorghum, barley, rye. Um, and I was working for the USDA, so I did my master's research. I changed my project a few times, but I ended up doing tortillas. So basically I was evaluating <laughs> different early generation lines of wheat for their end-use quality making tortillas. Um, we also had a bread lab there. We made noodles and I, I like tortillas. So I'm like, well, I wanna do my research on tortillas. And I actually did, gotta go down to Texas A&M because they're kind of the big tortilla town and um, went down to College Station and did a joint project with them, so. Can I ask a nerdy question then? <laughs> sure. Why do some tortillas stick more than others, you know what I mean? When you get a pack, I'm not talking about like yeah, fresh. Yeah, it's probably just one. a lot with how they were processed. They may have been packaged when they were warm or it could be with the formulation. I didn't really look a lot. Um, my research kind of focused on, there was the quality characteristics. Um, we would like actually roll like shelf life stability. So yeah. I actually like every four days I take a tortilla that I made and roll it around a wooden dowel and evaluate how much it cracked because you don't want your tortillas to crack and all your ingredients come out. Um, and then like the diameter is important. You want a uniform diameter so they fit in the bag. The thickness is important. The toast spots on them are not, you know, people like to see those nice little toast spots on there. So that's kind of the quality mm -hmm. characteristics I looked mm -hmm. at. I'm not quite sure, but I'd assume it was a processing problem when they stick together like that. That sounds cool. I think I could totally do that, Chris. Aren't you like, sign me up for that job? If it was just eating tortillas and tacos and things, then yeah, put me in there. Well, that, that's the side benefit. 
well, I guess we can't use this anymore. It's been handled, so I'll have to fill it with my favorite salsa. Mm-hmm. That is fast. I never thought about it. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a whole different world. Like our bake lab, um, they bake these little mini 100-gram loaves of bread. We call pup loaves. And they'd measure things like crumb grain and loaf volume. And, like, people do that. And, like, all these sensory tests, you know, they... Again, on the crumb, you don't want big holes in your piece of bread where your jelly's falling through and you're having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So all those things are really that's, important in the baking industry. And that's, yeah, and that's been my issue with the tortillas I'm talking about. It's like you get those two, and once you and mess up the first down. one because it sticks, it just ruins the whole package. <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of that. We don't really look at that where I work now. We're more kind of... Um, just looking at the grain itself and some of the tests there. So we don't have any of the end use. We don't make any of the products. So no bread or tortillas. At that time, and maybe today, do you feel like the class composition was divided equally by gender, male, female? And I'm asking this because I just ran into one of my former students who's a freshman in college right now. And the school where I taught at, Academy Lafayette, we had the most unbelievable science teacher, Muriel Displets, who's still there. And she was so able to connect with our young ladies. I can't tell you how many of them have gone into to science. And I don't think that was the case necessarily 20, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Do you feel like, was that a, a male-dominated field at that time? You mean in college or in high school? I'm, I'm at Manhattan now at the, at the university uh, level. Um, yeah, I think, you know, be, the ag college, it was a lot of males. I think we only had one female professor in green science at that time. I'm not for sure what it's like now, but yeah, I think because a lot of um, the green science was milling, which is very kind of labor intensive. So uh-huh. there, there's some female millers, but it's milling wheat is, it's a hard job. It's physically okay. you're lifting giant okay. things of weed and milling them and it's dusty and dirty. And okay. so it was predominantly male, I think. I'm just asking too, because I feel like you just talking to you briefly about you'd be a great teacher. I mean, you're already <laughs> all fired up like to get in the lab and start dissecting whatever it is. That's <laughs> awesome. And then last thing, I think you know a, a mutual friend, Frank Serino. Franco. Yeah, I met him at college. Um, this bar called The Spot he used to work at that I spent a little more time than I should have at. So we became really good friends in college and just kind of okay. kept in touch throughout the years. Because he was a friend of my uh, business partner, Jim's from high school, a friend of a friend. Hadn't seen the guy in like 30 years, but we used to actually write each other postcards when we were in college, thinking of the quaint days. But I recently <laughs> re-encountered him because he's a huge Bonton soul accordion fan yeah, yeah. And actually I'd say he's another member honorary member of the band he basically yeah. well I think he runs their website and Facebook and everything yes it's been so great to reconnect with him and he's uh, a huge um, Rush fan <laughs> and that's how I know him because when I was in high school I was sort of like you know getting into new wave music the Cure or the Smiths REM and he and my friends were these just massive Rush fans and they really got me to understand actually the lyrics uh, were so deep, so philosophical. You know, the music seems kind of bombastic on the one hand, but actually it's really intricate. And they'd like, oh, Spray, you need to listen to Rush. I'm like, KY 102, you know, 101 <laughs> of Fox, I'm listening to that garbage. But actually he was 
like he was ahead of his time. But I know encountering him the last few years, he's mentioned you before and I'm like, I guess you guys went to school together. <laughs> okay, well, so uh, that little segue there, <laughs> that was 2006, you said? You were in Manhattan until? 2007, yeah. Okay, and then you came to Kansas City? Yep. Was that with USDA? Um, well, I came here for a boy, and that did not work out. But I um, basically transitioned. They kind of brought me in on a job with a different agency. So I basically just kind of transferred up here in a way. Okay. I understand. Had you, I mean, had you been here before? Oh yeah, I spent a lot of time here. I went to shows at the Grand Emporium and Davies and Lone Star and all the Hurricane and all the bars. I used to come up to shows pretty regular and I knew Abigail and um, a bunch of people up here already. And like when their bands would come to Manhattan, they'd stay at my house and so they didn't have to drive to Kansas City. So I had a pretty good network of friends here before I moved. Were you a live music fan in college? When did that start? Yeah, probably in college. I mean, in high school, I used to go to kind of the arena rock hair band shows, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Poison Rat. I spent a lot of time at those concerts. My aunt took me, my first concert, I think, was Rick Springfield at the Bicentennial Center in Salina. Who? One more time, sorry. Um, my aunt took me to Rick Springfield at the oh, Bicentennial Center in Salina, Kansas. I Pretty sure that was my first real concert, besides maybe just like a little local band or something. And then, yeah, me and my cousin, we'd rip up our jeans and go to all these hair bands, tease up our hair, put as much makeup on as we could, and did that through high school. And then when I moved to college, um, I hung out at the spot a lot. They had a lot of live bands. Saw the Iguanas, was really interesting. <laughs> Um, I think that was Frank liked them really well. Yeah. Kind of how I started hanging out with him. Last Chance to have some bands. I remember Split Lip actually played there. House of Large Sizes played there. And then when I was in grad school, I found out about Annie Mays and kind of changed my life. Um, one of my new coworkers, John, told me about this band, Scroat Belly. And this was like oh, yeah. January, and they were going to be playing in August. And I'm like, this guy really likes his band. But I went and saw them. They played at this place called the Way Down Lounge. It's underneath the Wareham Hotel. They had a little venue going there for a while. And Scrote Belly just blew me away. Like, I loved them. I immediately started following everything on Bloodshot Records and Split Lip and started hanging out at Annie Mae's and seeing all these local and indie bands. So it really, you know, before I was kind of just listening to cover bands and what was on the radio, but it really got me Abigail and the Gaslights came and played, and that's how I met her, and Pendergast, um, met a lot of the Kansas City bands by going to Annie Mae's. This is like early 2000s, late yeah, 90s? Yeah, early, late, yeah, mid-2000s, I guess. Okay. First, that first Scrote Belly show was actually 1995. Okay. Did, is that right? Did, yeah. <laughs> did you say it, the iguanas or the salty iguanas? The salty iguanas. Yeah. They're from Lawrence, kind of yeah. jam band. Yeah, Barry, the guitarist, yeah, is the old... Yeah friend of mine from KU, he's still rocking. Yeah. I realize I've completely forgotten to ask you this. We may need to cut out here with Chris. What was, what was the music, what were your musical influences as a child? Did you have music in the home? Yeah, my parents had some old records, but they weren't really into it. Like I say, my aunt was the one that 
took me to my first concert and my cousin Cherry was kind of more like my sisters. My cousins kind of would make me listen to stuff. Um, I remember grandma always had records and for some reason we'd play musical chairs, me and the cousins. I remember they had Nancy Sinatra's, these boots are made for walking. I always kind mm-hmm. of dug that song. But yeah, just kind of whatever the cousins would get me into. Classic, just, just like most kids, we just pick it up from someone. Did you play, anybody play an instrument? Well, I had to play in junior high band was mandatory to have enough kids to play for like the marching band or at football games and stuff. So I had to play drums because I couldn't make any other instrument even sound remotely like music. And I wasn't good at drums, but I could at least make a noise that wasn't horrible. I didn't really have any rhythm or wasn't any good at it. Rhonda, so at some point you mentioned meeting Abigail Henderson. Was that your first, I guess the foundation wasn't even there at that time. No, I met her, I think back in 2006, um, the Gaslights played in Manhattan. I think that was the first time I met her. Rebel Junction played in Manhattan too. I may have met her there, but really our first conversations came at those Gaslight shows and the band would start staying at my house and just because I didn't want everybody driving back to, at 2 a.m. to Kansas City. And so we just became friends that way. Hmm. Hmm. And then how, what led you to becoming involved with the Midwest Music Foundation? Well, when I moved up here in 2007, um, Abigail got diagnosed with cancer shortly after that. It was like six months or so, and I helped with the first benefit. Um, The first apocalypse meow was for Abby, and so I was part of the crew that helped with that. And Tony Laddish actually came up with the name apocalypse meow. I was thinking Abigailia, but apocalypse meow is a much better name, so I'm glad he did that. And then Abigailia. the Abigailia. Abigail. <laughs> okay. I love it. Um, but um, so yeah, we had that first benefit back in 2008. And they'd have these inklings of starting a foundation. I remember one year at Crossroads Music Festival, they had their little notebooks and they were asking people about insurance. Because when Abby was down in New Orleans, she had a hernia and she went to the musician's healthcare clinic down in New Orleans. And she's like, Kansas City needs something like this. So they wanted to do something like this. When Abby got cancer, it was like, yeah, we really need this because, you know, when musicians get sick, they don't have insurance or they have these catastrophic plans with $5,000 deductibles. Um, So the need really became evident then. So that night at Apocalypse Meow, she swore, you know, because we had so many bands that wanted to play that first event, we ended up doing three nights. So she swore she'd give back and the foundation kind of started from that. I was pretty much at the beginning, I was just supposed to be the membership coordinator or some little position. And then I kind of, as people left, I kind of moved up the ranks, I guess. And when Abby passed, um, kind of took over. Um, Basically, I guess I'm the only one that's really good at spreadsheets. I don't know. I just kind of fell into it. Um, And then both Sandra and I, when Abby passed, we made her a promise to keep it going. And I'm proud that we've been able to grow a little bit each year. So we're still, you know, compared to a lot of nonprofits, small, but, you know, every year we've grown a little bigger. And this year has actually been our biggest year with the COVID fund. We've given out over $100,000 as of today. I've just got three applications today. It'll put us over $100,000. Which are just for this year? The just in the COVID fund. 
we've given out some in, from Abby's fund on top of that, um, kind of in perspective, our whole budget last year was 120,000. So um, it's been a huge year for us, but a lot of that was, you know, Chris Hagarian, they put together that KC bands together, Victor and Penny did that live stream and they raised a lot of money. Otherwise we wouldn't have been able to give out this much. So a lot of the fundraising efforts this year, the only reason we've been able to do that. Both, both those events were uniquely special in, in their own ways. I think that, you know, Chris and I were just talking about starting something, <laughs> measuring these small steps that you take. You, you've just have to, had to have seen so many changes. This is the 13th year for Apocalypse Meow? Yeah. It's incredible. Can you give the audience a, just a general overview of the goals of the foundation? You get kind of did. I put Brenton Cook on the spot a few episodes ago. <laughs> he felt like he flubbed it, but I don't think he did at all. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, our main one is basically just supporting artists in any way. Abby truly believed that you should be able to have music be a viable career. It shouldn't be a hobby. You should be able to make a living. So we've kind of put you know, the healthcare fund is definitely, I think, where a lot of our efforts go. And I think that's what people relate to the most and seem to want to give to the most because anybody can relate to having someone that's been in the hospital and couldn't pay these gigantic bills. And obviously we can't either, but we give them just, you know, a small grant to help them with their immediate needs. And that gives them some time to apply for some government assistance and other things that are going to take a lot longer. That's something we we try to make it as easy and simple and as quick as we can. So usually when we get a healthcare application in from Abby's fund, I send it out to all the board. We all vote by email. Um, you know, if it's someone we don't know, I'll check all the references and things like that. And usually within a week, we have a decision and a check cut. Um, and then I have a whole list of resources that I can send them to after that. There's the national organization Music Cares that's helped out artists, you know, when we kind of max out with what we can give to each person. Um, there's just some other funds, but they just are a little more involved in the paperwork and take a little longer because it is a national organization and they're a lot bigger than us. So they have a lot more to go through. Um, so that's kind of our main thing. Mm -hmm. Other than that, we do Midcoast Takeover down in Austin. Um, Obviously, this year we didn't. Next year, it looks like South by is going to be virtual, so we won't go down there again. I don't know what the future holds for that or any big festivals, um, but we started that as just a way to promote Kansas City musicians on a national stage. A lot of the bands aren't known outside of Kansas City, and it gives them experience touring and putting on a showcase and hopefully getting their music in front of people like booking agents um, TV spots and things like that. So just giving them an opportunity to play for a larger um, audience than they would hear. Um, we also have an educational arm. A lot of that we've partnered. Um, we send people to Artist Inc. and some other groups that are kind of more equipped for that. We used to do a legal boot camp for musicians with the KCVLAA. Um, they're the Kansas City Volunteer Lawyers and Accountants for the Art. So they used to help us with that. We just decided there's a lot of groups like Artist Inc. that are really good at doing the educational side. And then Nick Carswell does Mix Master every year. So we've kind of partnered with more of them rather than try to do our own events. But those are kind of the three, the three main areas is just promotion of Kansas City and Midwest artists, education, and our healthcare fund. 
that was perfect. Good job. Good job. I oh hope God. we can, can share that with other organizations. I make you repeat yourself. I'm sure you've explained <laughs> that before, but I've said to many people, I've, I've seen you countless times at performances over the years. I knew you were involved with the foundation, but it wasn't until the takeover in Austin 2019 that I just saw you in action. You know, it was like seven o'clock in the morning on the last, well, not I guess the last morning, it was Saturday morning. Don't you even stay through on Sunday? Yeah, Sunday's kind of breakdown day where we break down the stage and everything and okay. kind of our, I, a little bit of relaxation day because Shane yeah. Law has a big locals only party and we've been made honorary Texans. You have to have a Texas ID to get on in Shangri-La on Sunday. Is that they right? allow us because we kind of have become honorary Texans. Well, I was there for a total of 48 hours, but I just clearly remember it was like 7 or 7.30 Saturday morning. Chad Mize is up on the roof doing something with sound and you get out of the car with Sandra. Canyon, I think, was there too. Got your coffees in hand. And I'm like, they've been doing this like six days in a row. This is insane. I'm exhausted just watching them. Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty physically exhausting. I didn't miss it this year, but part of me was, you know, we're getting older. It's it's kind of physically exhausting every year. I seem to have some kind of right. ailment either. I've seen about every urgent care in Austin. One year I actually ended up in the emergency room. Um, had nothing to do. It was a gallbladder attack, but... Um, which we found out later that they, they misdiagnosed oh, wow. me, but I was just, luckily it happened after South by Sandra and I usually um, take a week of recovery, rest and relaxation down there. We'll either go um, sometimes the Shangri-La crew, they get some cabins up in Hill Country. We've done that a few years. Um, one year we went down to San Antonio, just take a few days just to kind of actually enjoy being down in the South when it's warm and it's cold back here. So. Well, but yeah, I, well, that year I wasn't physically able to come home, so, but. No, well-deserved. You're both very wise to try to decompress like that. Would you say this year you've seen an increased need of artists reaching out for assistance? I mean, is that uh, just a stupid question yeah, on my part? Definitely, definitely with the COVID fund. Um, one thing, Abby's fund has actually been down a little over last year, but I think a lot of that is because people have been putting off health care, like they don't want to go to the hospitals, you know, for a while the hospitals were canceling non-emergency procedures. So, so I think we'll start seeing an uptick and I'm assuming, you know, some musicians have probably contracted COVID and may have complications there. So I think probably next year's when we'll see a real influx of Abby's Fund's requests. One thing that's kind of neat about the Kansas City musicians is a lot of them don't apply because they think someone else needs it more. So, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of amazing our community, how they support each other. But I'm like, if you need it, apply. But a lot of times they're like, oh, somebody else needs it worse. You know, I'll be okay. But so that's kind of one thing we kind of have to sometimes encourage people to apply. Mm -hmm. What's the easiest way for people to get the information? About um, the our website pretty much has everything you need to know. And that's MidwestMusicFoundation.org. MidwestMusicFoundation.org. Uh, you, I think you bring up a really good point too, just as far as people deferring treatment for, you know, just routine things or elective surgeries and stuff. Uh, they've put it off because they don't want to go in for a risk. I'm just thinking these insurance companies are just <laughs> taking premiums left and right and we're not, we're not using our benefits. 
Okay. Uh, I do want to, I do want to say something real quick and we'll see if we, if I can, uh, if I can get through this without getting too emotional about it. <clears throat> um, hold on. So I didn't know Abby um, at all. I never met her. Um, and so Midwest Music Foundation to me was always um, Rhonda and Sandra and all the, all the people that they have helped them out. Um, mm -hmm. And the support and things that they give to local artists is just, it's incredible. And mm -hmm. to be welcomed into the community the way I was, the, sorry. No, I hear you, Chris. Um, and to be involved in Abby's Fund and MMF in just the smallest way, um, I'm, uh, I'm really proud and uh, thankful to you all. Um, it really means a lot what you guys do, giving artists a platform and just welcoming people in. So uh, you really, you and um, Sandra and Chris and everybody um, really make um, this scene a community. And uh, sorry, I, I knew this was coming, and I <laughs> I love it. I was right? like I was like I dreading I was like dreading talking about. It. I was getting like so nervous while you guys were talking about it because I'm like I gotta. It just means a lot to me what you guys do for this community and for artists and. Um, yeah, I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it in a small way. Well, it's more than a small way. Chris, you and all the staff at Record Bar, I mean, we couldn't do what we do without you because, you know, you guys welcome us in and let us take over your venue. And that's where we hold a lot of our fundraisers. And you've moved more tables for me than <laughs> anyone should ever have. Every time we have an auction at Record Bar, I'm like, I need another table. I need another table. But now we have the online auctions, so I will not need so many tables. So <laughs> we're just glad we're able to help. And, you know, it's been amazing to be part of that. You know, this wasn't really something I set out to do, but my friend Abby Dell did. And, you know, she was an inspiration to me and I made her a promise. So you got, you all have um, meant a lot to me in, uh, and this community. So thank you. Chris, that's, that's why we've got you involved as producer. I knew I was going to get Rhonda on the program. <laughs> and I, and I it, it, it's so true, though. You, when you see people serve others, I always try to impress that upon my students, like forced volunteerism at first. But when you see people give back, it makes you want to give back. It makes you feel like you have a part, especially during these tough times connected. As you mentioned, uh, as Rhonda mentioned, one of the ways I first encountered you too was with the Mixmaster Conference. You must mention Nick Carswell, and you were offering the, um, do you remember two years ago? The, the earplugs, earplugs yeah. I'm, I'm a loser. I'm not a musician. I'm just some <laughs> guy trying to start a record label. And Rhonda contacted me, you know, at the last minute saying, hey, I've got an opening if you want to come in. I'm like, oh, well, God, you know, somebody, I don't deserve this, but you, you make people want to get involved and you make people want to be part of that community. And especially during challenging times like now, you give a lot of people a lot of hope. And Chris, I, I'm so glad you said that. I think that's really important. 
Okay, virtual tissues going around. <laughs> I wish we could hug. I hate yeah. not being able to hug. Mallory and Rhonda Line. We've all had a virtual hug now, and that leads us into a great segue to talk about something that Rhonda feels is great about Kansas City. Doesn't have to be involved in the music community either. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think one thing I'm going to, because I know the music community the best, I guess, is just, I think the music community is really good at supporting each other. You'll go to a show and the majority of the audience may be other musicians from different bands, supporting each other and just pitching in, you know, when there's a need, like, you know, this COVID thing has been devastating to all the musicians, yet a lot of them are still donating and helping others when they can. And like I mentioned before, um, with Abby's fund, one thing that's, you know, a lot of musicians, I kind of have to twist their arms to apply because they're like, well, man, somebody else will need it worse, you know, you know, I can get by, like my thing's not that bad. You should give it to someone else. So I think that's one thing, you know, we always say we have a, we like to say we have a music community, not a music scene. Because um, mm -hmm. I feel like it is a community and everybody cares about each other. And there's a lot of collaborations between groups and, you know, yeah, there's some friendly competition, but I think in general, everybody tries to, you know, bring each other up because that's good for the whole community if everybody's supporting each other. I'm, I'm curious too, you mentioned a couple of events earlier this year, Casey bands together, Chris Aguirian whipped that puppy up with, I mean, I'll, I'll just help too. Uh, Aaron McGrain and Jeffrey Lee, Victor and Penny also did. Are artists coming to you with proposals or ways they can get involved? Oh, Are you... Like both of those, they came to us. Um, you know, Rex Hobart did some streams for us. Several artists have, you know, donated live stream, the donations from that to us. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. They're all like, what can we do to help? And, you know, I feel like we should be helping them. <laughs> like, you guys right. keep the money for yourselves, but they just want to, everybody just really wants to pitch in and help. Right. You're not tracking people down trying to fill the bill for Apocalypse Meow. No, you know, a lot of times bands are wanting to volunteer their time. And so, so mm. it, you know, it kind of makes our job easier when they just come to us and want to do a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And I think you touched upon another very good point is seeing artists on a particular bill for, for an evening, you know, three or four artists supporting each other, sticking around for their shows or being there ahead of time. I've been in other cities, other places where, you know, they're in and out. They'd come do their show and adios. You know, we don't, we don't have time for that. And maybe they're busy. I, don't, I shouldn't be judging them either. But 
you do see that sense of community. And again, across different genres, people you wouldn't think necessarily are gonna be performing or working together. conversations about this the last few episodes? Yeah, well, I think it's still really difficult for musicians here to make a living playing music. Um, sometimes we joke that we're passing around the same 20. Like I mentioned, it's musicians going to other musician shows. Um, we've been for years trying to figure out a way to get more people to see local bands. A lot of times it is a small, limited audience. You know, the people from the suburbs, I don't think are really coming in downtown for shows. Maybe they are, but I just feel like it needs to be more people supporting this. Um, also get some, you know, some support from the city. You know, we get a little bit of funding there, but, you know, some cities really support their artists in some countries. You know, musicians usually make a lot more money when they go overseas because a lot of these countries really value their artists and that music you know, they, they put a lot of money and funding into it. And I feel like we're still, still missing that here. And I know, you know, this year, funding's hard to come by for everyone. So um, one thing, it seems like bands are always looking for somewhere to practice. It's affordable. I think, I know a new place opened up. I don't know much about it, but I keep getting the ads in my feed and I don't know how much it costs, but I know that's always a struggle for artists. Um, just basically just, you know, some tools and industry support where they can make a living out of being a musician. I remember even three years ago, four years ago before starting the label, talking to some artists about how, like you said, difficult it is to find a space. They were renting, I think, storage units yeah. to practice in, to rehearse because they couldn't afford, you know, to get another, another space. And I think you also mentioned too, you know, getting the city involved. Do you both consider Kansas City an arts city? I mean, that's a question I should ask. Yeah, no, um, you know, there's great organizations like Art KC and Midwestern Arts Alliance. So, you know, there's some infrastructure there, but obviously we need more. So especially, I think a lot of times the visual arts see a lot more of the funding than the performing arts, especially, you know, the rock bands. And that's, you know, the symphony and some of these bigger things have some, some, some donors in place, but a lot of times the musicians we work with are kind of overlooked as, ah, they're just. Chris, any thoughts on that? There's no right or wrong answer here, by the way. Um, well, it's tough for me to answer because I'm so like heavily involved in the arts that I totally consider it a 
um, an art city, but, um, you know, I guess if you're not in it and around it all the time, you wouldn't maybe think that, like, I guess if you grew up, if, well, I did grow up in the suburbs, but I was also like involved in the arts up there, but you know, it just like somebody in my position working at the record bar and being around it all the time. Um, I have a different perspective on it than somebody who works at Cerner. You of know? course. Of course. Well, and you've got, you know, several venues fairly close to you. Right. I guess for me growing up here, I don't feel like as a kid, Kansas city was an art. I don't ever remember going to the Nelson and maybe that's just my, on my family, I'm not giving my parents a hard time, but I would say maybe like with the Kaufman center, with the development of the crossroads, Mm -hmm. Ronnie, you've mentioned a bunch of great organizations. It's a, it's a pretty long list. Maybe it's just more like the, the, the grassroots aren't, don't have the infrastructure they need as much as some of the bigger institutions. Yeah. Transportation's an issue in this town, obviously, although we've talked about now people can take Ubers to come into shows if they really want to come in. Well, I, I think of it too, is like, I also lived in St. Louis and us having three or four venues before the pandemic that were all running shows nonstop, you mm -hmm. know, at pretty much every day, at least three or four, you know, like, and then, you know, there's a, there's more than three or four venues, but like just constantly being busy, constantly doing these things. Like we're pretty lucky. Like that doesn't happen everywhere. Like sure. I remember going to like touring shows on a Tuesday or Wednesday in St. Louis and there'd be nobody there here at mm -hmm. like record bar. We're, those those are some of our busiest days are during the week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that's a pretty good way to wrap things up. Do we wear, wear you out, Rhonda? No. My dog's starting to get a little antsy, though. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what I keep reaching down at him. I ran out of treats. Time for a walk at the K. We are so appreciative to have you today. Yeah, and thank you Chris, so much. As Chris mentioned, no, thank you. The, the entire crew at the foundation, I just see you all doing so many things on very small levels to very grand scales, especially this year. We hope that you continue to, you know, receive support from the community, not for just the rest of this year and during the pandemic moving forward and continue to grow. The services that you offer are just so helpful. We, this will actually be my last time this year. So I'm going to say adios. Michelle Bacon's taken over for our next episode. Oh. She's been a wonderful <laughs> guest. I won't tell you who that is. <laughs> but for now, everybody, Kansas City, stay safe, stay strong. Peace out.